the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome back to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast here on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, taking a break from watching the uh, Detective Pikachu trailer on repeat to talk a little college football with you this morning. Uh, I'm Joe Londrigan, the Conference USA Western Kentucky blogger over at UDD with uh, Mr. Eric Henry, FIU beat reporter. How are you doing today, sir? Good morning or good early afternoon, depending on where you are at and listen to this one. I'm doing all right, Joe. Can't complain, brother. Good, good. How many times have you watched the Detective Pikachu trailer, Eric? Uh, uh, let's the over under. Let's put it half a dozen. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched it a little bit yesterday, and then I fell asleep, and then um, I woke up this morning. Uh, my girlfriend was already up, and she was like, "It's like." Do you see there's a Pokemon movie? I haven't watched the trailer yet. And I was like, oh, do I have a treat for you? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Nice, nice. Oh, yeah. It'll be good. Uh, it'll be certainly be more fun to watch than whatever Western Kentucky football is turning in right now. And uh, they lose 34-15 to to FAU over the weekend. Big rushing day once again for the Owls. Kareth White Jr. and Devin Singletary both get two touchdowns each on the ground. Uh, at least 140 yards. Uh, 315 total rushing yards for the Owls in the day. Congrats to uh, Joshua Samuel, though, from Western Kentucky as he eclipses 100 yards on the ground. And that is the first time that's been done in the Mike Sanford era. Um, really, this just came down to the Hilltoppers just not being able to keep pace with that FAU offense, which is more or less what we thought would happen. 576 total yards for FAU on the day, 351 for the Hilltoppers. Um, only 21 first downs compared to FAU's 28. And again, more or less what we expected from this game as uh, Western Kentucky drops to one and nine and FAU improves to five and five on the year. That's a, that's on me. That, that I got a phone call. That's on me. Here you go. Um, what, what's the last thing you said so I can transition to that? <laughs> I just said, uh, as, uh, the Hilltoppers drop to one and nine, FAU improves to five and five still in a uh, decent shape here. Yeah, Joe. I mean, you want to talk about FAU. They were a team a couple weeks ago who we really didn't know what they were at this point. You know, were they going to be a team that was going to just kind of tank this season and, you know, potentially miss a bowl game? Or were they going to be able to rebound? And, you know, they really have done a great job picking up the win in the rivalry game versus uh, FIU in the Shula Bowl. And, you know, they transitioned in the next week into a W against Western. Just kind of a, you know, methodical beating of, of the tops. You know, Chris Robinson didn't have any turnovers, which is huge from that position. And they just rode the run game to victory. Um, you know, for, for Western Kentucky, they shouldn't feel too bad that they gave up, you know, 100 yards of both backs and white and singletary because guess what you know they've done that to a lot of teams this year you know um i was really surprised when i saw the stat uh that you mentioned earlier that uh, in the mike sanford era josh samuel is the first running back to go over 100 on the ground and that's a positive but at the same point in time it just goes to show that you know for a guy like mike sanford who who, who really comes in with a really great pedigree uh, offense has been kind of a challenge, and, and you know we'll get on to the Mike Sanford topic uh, later in the show in the midpoint. But it just goes to show you that you know things have not gone exactly according to plan since his tenure has started. Uh, McQuan Dean, you know, had a nice game, ten grabs over hundred yards, but it's just been that kind of year for the tops. You know, as they they fall to one and eight on the year, and it's just it's just tough to kind of figure out you know where they're going to go from here. Yeah, and certainly looks like the likelihood that they move forward with Mike Sanford as the head coach, at least into 2019, is uh, 
that likelihood is getting smaller and smaller as uh, the Bowling Green Daily News and Brad Stevens reporting earlier this week that West uh, Mike Sanford's future is largely going to be dependent on what happens in these last two games uh, against UTEP and Louisiana Tech. If he drops both, sounds like he's gone. If he drops uh, one, it's kind of up in the air. If he wins both, sounds like he's at least bought himself another year. And uh, I can't really blame Western Kentucky's leadership for this decision, should it be true. And at this point, I really have no reason to doubt uh, Stevens and the, the Bowling Green Daily News and those guys that have been ingrained in that program so deeply for the last couple of years uh, and even prior to that. So I think that's probably the right move, honestly. I, I think what's kind of frustrating at this point is Mike Sanford's clearly a, just a good guy, but I, this is just not the right fit. The team's not winning games. That talent that he has on the roster is not progressing at a, you know, pace that makes you optimistic for where this team's going. So, you know, if that happens and they do end up, you know, if, if you lose to UTEP, I think that's, if you're basing whether or not you keep a coach on if he can beat UTEP, that's kind of your answer right there, isn't it? Joe, um, I'm going to kind of, well, I mean, to agree with you, sure, if you're basing on whether they can beat UTEP or not, that's, that is indicative of something. But mm-hmm. I, I got to push back on, on one thing here. You know, it, the article says, you know, he'll return. There's a likelihood he'll return if he wins both games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to put that on the record now. I don't think that he'll win both games. Sure. Uh, it, but it says it's unclear if he splits the two games, right? Mm-hmm. So, Joe, what the hell do you learn if, if you beat UTEP and, and lose to, to uh, Louisiana Tech? I mean, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the split scenario is what kind of threw me off. Um, so I really hope that that's not necessarily the, the the thinking from the powers that be at Western Kentucky, because like you said, you know, if if the hopes for this program is, is you know, wow, we beat UTEP, a, t- a UTEP team that's really going to rebuild of their own. I don't know what you learn from, let's say they beat UTEP by three scores and go out and get smoked by Louisiana Tech. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the split justifies. So, you know, that that to me was kind of something that was kind of bewildering. But I think you hit the nail on the head in that it might not be the best fit. And Mike Sanford clearly is a great guy, but this fit might not just be the best for him. But, yeah, that uh, I don't want to harp on that because obviously that that's reporting. And, and, and uh, you know, it, it's not he's <laughs> it, not making the case that, you know, if, if they split um, – there's a difference between winning both and losing both, but just if the powers that be at Western Kentucky are saying, "Hey, well, if you win one, lose one, it's up in the air." I just don't understand the rational behind that. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think if you split those two, like if you mentioned, if you beat UTEP and then go out the next week and get destroyed by uh, Louisiana Tech. You know, I, I kind of agree that that maybe not be the healthiest thinking in terms of uh, judging this guy's job performance. But I think at the same time, if you, I think you can agree if you lose to UTEP and then somehow beat Tech, I think that's just more indicative of a fluke, I guess. Um, I, it's just it's you're right in that it's a little interesting in that just kind of it's a flip of a coin if you split games. But I think. At this point, it's just a matter of like, does he have any kind of, uh, you know, can he push this team any further than he already has in terms of performance on the field? Because it's not looking like he can just because of the red zone issues that they've had and uh, the play calling issues that we've seen throughout the year. So I think it's I think at, at some on some level, it's a little bit of like a weird reaction, considering that they're saying that. Um 
at this point in the year when you only have two games left, and one of those, again, is UTEP. But I think I think everyone involved in this is just a little um, worn down by how much this team is losing, and uh, I think they just they know they have to make a change because you know, even the more level-headed parts of Western Kentucky Twitter are frustrated. You know what I mean? Sure. Even the people that are like, Mike Sanford is a great guy. He's been a big part of the community. He is clearly, like, not a jerk or, uh, you know, he doesn't have these ego issues that you see with a lot of other, uh, you know, coaches of any age throughout college football. But if the program's not winning, that's a big problem <laughs> considering, you know, the how much of a money maker this program is on some levels and how much of a uh, a source of pride it's been for the community surrounding this university in the last three, four, five years. So I think, you know, they know that it's a big issue if this team isn't winning games. Not only are they not winning games, they're not really even coming close in the last, you know, six, seven outings. So I it something's gotta change. Sure. You know, just my final point on this one is I, I used this analogy earlier in the season that uh, when USF, when they had to make a move from Jim Levitt and they had hiring Skip Holtz, mm-hmm. Skip Holtz had had a lot of success where he was prior. Um, but for one reason or another, it just wasn't a good fit. And the program really took um, a, a lot of steps backwards that they didn't really recover until uh, Willie Taggart was able to get it going in his second season. So I think that kind of is where Western Kentucky is now in the sense that, you know, they've, they're coming off a, a long stress, excuse me, a long stretch of success. And the Mike Sanford hire for one reason or another just hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're going to cut bait, I just think just cut bait. It shouldn't matter whether, you know, you win these two or you split. If you're going to cut bait and you realize, hey, you know, the program is trending downward, you you want to you want to address that now before it turns to a prolonged issue. For sure. Uh, as I kind of wrap up the Western Kentucky talk, one thing that was interesting to me is if you're going forward and uh, you're just trying to find ways to, to win games and uh, everything that's happened with – the quarterback situation, give Kavars Thomas some playing time. Uh, this guy is the highest rated quarterback recruit that school's ever had. Uh, you know, with all respect to Stephen Duncan and Davis Shanley, neither of those guys are really getting it done. They, uh, Drew Eccles is hurt. Just give him a shot. And then my, my only fear if uh, Mike Sanford does make an exit is, you know, does Kavars Thomas transfer? Because I think this kid is the real deal in terms of talent, and that would that would be kind of a bummer to see uh, the tops lose somebody of his caliber. But and I have a feeling that's going to happen with a lot of kids from that recruiting class if Sanford does, because it happens with every coaching change. Kavars Thomas is from about an hour north of here in Lakeland, and uh, I've seen that kid play for a while. He's the real deal. So that's a you know very good point that you bring up there. Yeah, so hopefully we'll see what happens there. Um, we'll figure out whether or not uh, the coaching search for the Hilltoppers is going to commence before the end of the season or not. Um, but for right now, we'll move ahead to Marshall playing Charlotte. And uh, the Herd win this game 30-13 to as they improve to 6-3 uh, and three on the year to get back to bowl eligibility. And a big third quarter is really what propelled the Thundering Herd in this one. Uh, You see a big game on the ground from Mr. Brendan Knox, the freshman getting 116 yards on the ground on 22 carries. Very big day for him. And uh, 
while Ben LeMay, another solid day with 70 yards on 13 carries, just not enough offensive firepower in that 49er team uh, to really get it going. They get outgained by Marshall, 325 yards to 185. Uh, so I think Marshall, while I think a lot of people had like conference champions hopes for this squad going forward, um, certainly not too shabby to get back to bowl eligibility once again. Uh, and Charlotte, if they are still holding on to that hope that they can make it to bowl eligibility this year, they got to win out their last two games. So that's where we're at with these two squads. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, covering FIU, and I'm normally on the road or normally uh, in some sort of uh, travel on Saturday, so I don't get a chance to watch as many Conference USA games as I'd like live. I normally catch the replay on the back end or catch highlights, but uh, I wasn't in travel this Saturday, so I watched three games uh, all at once. This was one of them, and you're right. You nailed it. The third quarter was really a difference in this one. Charlotte couldn't turn an early turnover uh, into a touchdown on that drive. Excuse me, going to the third quarter, and they had to settle for three points, and Marshall would get would get the ball back on his next possession and uh, turn that into a touchdown. Uh, you mentioned the name Brendan Knox. You know, he had a big-time game, and for me, that's the key right there because if they can get him going along with Anthony Anderson and then potentially get Tyler King back, you know, they'll have a chance to uh, win out their next two games, and, and especially against FIU, uh, that'd be huge for that program. The score that really put this one out of the reach was a back shoulder fade to Obi Obialo. That's one of my favorite names in college football. Oh, yeah. uh, that one made it, yeah, made it 30 to 13, and uh, Charlotte's offense, you know, without Chris Reynolds, just doesn't have the passing attack to come back from that kind of deficit. But, you know, they you, you got to give the 49ers credit. They played them tough. Um, ben LeMay and I shot finger uh, definitely had a, uh, some success on the ground. But the combo of Hassan Clue and Evan Sheriffs, and I'm, I'm glad that I have not called him Bryant one time this year. So that's been a struggle for me. The, the combo of those two, you know, kind of rotated a quarterback. Uh, uh, Clue was the runner to Sheriff's passing, but it just wasn't a, enough to, to get the job done for Charlotte. Um, and Isaiah Green had a nice return in uh, in, in uh and excuse me, not a nice return. He had a nice game for the herd. He's been back uh, in, the, in the lineup for the past couple of games. And uh, just, you know, good to see Marshall moving in the right direction going forward. Absolutely. Uh, Thundering Herd looking more or less like uh, like the team that we thought we'd see for most of the year uh, going all the way back to the offseason. But uh, as they kind of close out the year here, I can't be too happy with a win or can't be too sad, rather, uh, with a win any way you can get it. Um, Isaiah Green and happy to see him performing well again as he uh, had some injury issues a couple weeks ago. Uh, speaking of good passing attacks, that's exactly what we saw out of Middle Tennessee State in their contest with UTEP. The Blue Raiders win that game 48-32. to Four passing touchdowns for Mr. Brent Stockstill, nine yards away from 500 total yards for that MTSU offense in this game. On the UTEP side, just a few too many mistakes for the Miners on both sides of the ball, despite another good day for Mr. Quadrez Wadley in that run game. Um... So, yeah, I think with this minor team, just another example of putting up a really good fight, but just not being able to keep pace when it comes to scoring points. Yeah, Joe, this was another one of the games I got a chance to watch, and I was switching in between that uh, and the Charlotte game because they were actually happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, the backbreaker for UTEP was actually a fourth and three that they forced in, in the third, you know, but they ended up giving a 35-yard conversion from Stocksell to Ty Lee, and uh, Shatan Mobley would take it on the next play to make it 34-10 to 10 UTEP because uh, – it's 34-10 to 10 Middle Tennessee State, I'm sorry. UTEP would actually – not necessarily keep pace on the scoreboard, but the offense looked really good uh, considering all the struggles that they had had earlier this year. And 
one of the issues was Kyle Loxley's ankle. Um, he had to come out on a couple drives early in the game. Uh, and we all know how how much uh, his legs are crucial to his play. There was a point in the game, Joe, where Ty Lee had more receiving yards than UTEP had total yards, uh, and that was in the third quarter. So that that clearly was an issue. But UTEP, you, you could kind of see uh, some of the things that were indicative of their season all year long. You know, um, Kyle actually made some really good throws on the subsequent drive after the Tom Mobley touchdown. But you know, Josh Weeks uh, made two great catches on that drive, but he dropped a swing pass that could have put them in third and short. And instead, they were forced on a third and <clears throat> excuse me, a third and long, and, and then they'd missed a field goal. So just things like that, you know, little miscues like that when you're trying to get the program moving in the right direction, uh, they don't help you win games. And of course, uh, Brent Stocksdale's too good of a quarterback, you know, to, to kind of have those little miscues against them, and just gives you one of those games that we've been accustomed to seeing, you know, and as he winds down his middle Tennessee State career. For sure. The Blue Raiders, though, 6-1 uh, in conference play, 7-3 overall, leading the East right now with uh, two games left to play. Uh, those contests being against the University of Kentucky next week and uh, UAB the following week. So Blue Raiders in decent shape. Uh, just have to uh, hope that FIU drops a contest. We'll see if that happens or not. But Middle Tennessee State certainly playing, uh, I think, above their potential this year. And I don't know, did you expect this kind of uh, this kind of record from Middle Tennessee State at this point in the year? Because I certainly did not. Yeah, Joe. Quite frankly, I didn't, especially in, in the early going on in the early part of the season where they they got uh, just really run out of the building by Vanderbilt. I believe that score was thirty five to seven. Um, yeah, I, I really was down on Middle Tennessee State. So the fact that they've come back, especially after suffering the loss at FIU, and something I threw out on Twitter was, you know, if Brent Stocksville doesn't get hurt in that game down in Miami, uh, do they win that game? That, that's actually a fair question. But no, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way they've turned their season around. And yeah, you know, I, I'm right there. With you because I wasn't expecting that from them. For sure, and uh, that just makes these last two games all the more exciting. So we'll see what happens with the Blue Raiders moving forward. And uh, on the western side, we expected really big things out of North Texas uh, at multiple points during the year. Uh, however, they just weren't able to get it done against this Old Dominion team uh, over the weekend. Probably the most surprising result of the weekend. Within the loss, though, for the Mean Green, Mason Fine, now they're program's all-time leading passer so certainly congratulations to him on that and uh this game went all the way to uh, about 15 seconds left when ODU's Lala Davis scored the go-ahead TD as far as entertainment goes best game of the weekend I thought yeah, no, most definitely. And, and I did say last week that this might be a trap game for UNT because as we, we've talked about all season long, it's not like ODU is losing for lack of talent. You know, uh, ODU in the final game in the 89-year history of Foreman Field, you know, they pull off the upset of North Texas. And uh, something that happened that was really interesting was a kind of a bizarre incident that was kind of the impetus for, you know, the ODU comeback because they were down 28-10 to 10 in this game. Uh, Mean Green safety Kahari Muhammad was ejected for essentially spitting in the face of uh, John Duhart, uh, the Monarch star receiver. And, and Muhammad essentially refused to leave the field and was assessed two 15-yard penalties, one for taking off his helmet, the other for continuing to argue the incident, which did happen. Uh, and that set up a Nick Rice field goal, which kind of sparked the comeback. You know, just you want to talk about momentum in college football, especially in, in the college game, that really kind of swung it in favor of the home team. And, and that was all they needed. Um, all of the guys who needed to show up for Old Dominion did. You know, O'Shane Zimenez had a sack and a half. Travis Fulgham gets, a, you know, a buck 55 through the air. Um, Nick LaRusso 
you know, has a great ball game passing. So just Nick Larusa tries again. Different, different person. Blake Larusa has a has a, a nice game through the air, and just you know, a good win for ODU. You know, especially in the the, the final home game of Foreman Field to kind of go there and, and uh, pull off the upset it was great. For sure, and I think one of the things we talked about going into this game was there was going to be a lot of passing yards, and that's what we saw. Uh, Mason Fine, 240, Blake Lusa, 301, 541 total passing yards between these two teams. Uh, so great quarterback play from both, but it was just Old Dominion who were able to execute a little more. And like you mentioned, that that incident with the spinning definitely kind of turned things uh, turned things in a way that the Mean Green didn't want to see them go. So. And let me quickly correct myself. You know, I, I know this is the last year of Foreman Field. They got one more home game uh, against VMI. So just a quick correction there. Okay. So with that, we'll move on to Louisiana Tech beating Rice 28-13 to uh, in Ruston. Sean Stankovich back under center for the Rice Ls in this game. But it was both defenses that really shined here. Three turnovers apiece. For the Owls and the Texters, Colin Scott of Tech and Brudy Calderon of Rice both picked off two passes each. Uh, best offensive performance here goes to Adrian Hardy, who caught 10 balls for 160 yards. With uh, two weeks left, Tech has a strong chance to get to nine wins for the fifth time in seven years. Uh, very good things continuing to happen for the Bulldogs under Skip Holtz. Yeah, you know, all things considered, I think that's a huge plus for Tech because, you know, their year seemed like it had kind of been up and down as well. And the fact that they still, you know, have a chance to get to nine wins is huge. Excuse me, Sean Stankovich, as you mentioned, made his return to the Rice uh, lineup, but, you know, the Tech D was there to welcome him. Uh, three picks and the Bulldog, Bulldog offense bounces back after that abysmal showing at Mississippi State. Jamar Smith, you know, he had a couple turnovers, but he threw for 300 yards and Jaquist Dancy sees the end zone. Um, Rice's quarterback carousel, Joe, is something that's really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Parker Towns made his owl debut, and he's slated to see some action next week. And he's the fifth Rice quarterback to throw a pass for them this year. And something that I wish I'd actually uh, kind of kept track of, uh, Rice, when they traveled to FIU, they dress the most amount of quarterbacks I, I it just – off the top of my head that I can remember seeing uh, against FIU this year, they had six guys dressed. Um, or excuse me, they had five guys dressed, and that was without the six and Sean Stankovich. Wow. So, you know, the, the fact that they've they've kind of had this situation, you know, at, at the quarterback position, just it's kind of indicative of, uh, you know, the fight that Mike Bloomgram is, is uh, putting up and having to get this program rebuilt. Right. And it seems like, you know, if you have six guys that you're comfortable with playing quarterback, you know, you might say, oh, that's a good thing you have depth but at the same time like it's also kind of indicative of uh you know not being able to find one guy who can consistently get the job done i guess no yeah i mean if you have you know and sure in college you know there's a chance that you may end up playing multiple guys you know because you're gonna have six seven quarterbacks on the roster but as the old saying goes if you got two quarterbacks or in this case you got five you have none right so right that's kind of how it works yeah pretty much um, one thing that FIU does not have is uh, an issue with their quarterback as he uh, is just leading the team to a, a great record this year. Once again, 45-7 to was the score of the weekend as they play UTSA. Uh, Mr. James Morgan now has the most passing touchdowns in a single season for FIU football with 24, and the season isn't even over yet, so congrats to him on that. I think I expected this game to be a little bit closer, honestly. But uh, UTSA's abysmal offensive year just keeps getting worse. QB DJ Gillians channeled his inner Nathan Peterman and threw four interceptions on the day. What do you think of the Panthers in this one, Eric? 
Yeah, Joe, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on FIU this week because I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you expect this one to be pretty close. <laughs> um, this, this game was really cut and dry. You know, the story is James Morgan. By uh, by far, for me, he's Conference USA's Newcomer of the Year. You mentioned he breaks Magoo's uh, single-season TD pass record. And more importantly, you know, he gets back in rhythm personally after the rough outing in, uh, against FAU. He finds eight different receivers. And that's one thing about Morgan and this FIU offense that I, I think is key. Um, he routinely, I believe this is the sixth time this season that he's found at least eight different receivers. So that's something that, you know, they will spread the ball around. Um, you mentioned you mentioned DJ Gillings uh, channeling his inner Nathan Peterman. Uh, a couple of the picks weren't actually his fault. Mm. Um, the, the first one, Sage Lewis, I, I think he had the, the most amount of tip passes for a linebacker I've ever seen in a game. He had four uh, pass breakups, you know, so he consistently was in the throwing lanes of DJ Gillings. But the first pick was a tipped, was a tipped pass that landed uh, in the hands of uh, Edwin Freeman, who was making his return back to Texas after transferring from uh, from UT in the offseason. And the last one, Joe, was you know Gillings had been running for his life all evening long, and he just was at that point in the game. You know, you're down. I, I want to say it was 42-0 at that point in time. He just threw the ball up trying to make something happen. So there were really two of the picks that were on him, and I'm not saying that two picks, you know, still something you want to ride home about. But the, it, it wasn't exactly as the the box score showed. Joe, there were a lot of drops, and I really wanted to make a point to watch UTSA hard uh, on Saturday mm-hmm. because their their offense, as you mentioned, it's been abysmal. But it certainly isn't all on the quarterback. Uh, I got a drive here that's really kind of indicative of UTSA season. Uh, the second of final drive, they're they'd actually gotten in the FIU red zone a handful of times, but they just couldn't convert. Uh, tight end Carter McCarthy, I hate to call him out by name, you know, because you can really tell he was just crushed by it, but Joe, he dropped two straight passes that easily had a chance to be touchdowns. You know, the first one, he was wide open, uh, and he would have taken it in for sure. The second one, uh, just as wide open and maybe would have had to make a couple guys miss to get in the end zone, but just looked right in, you know, and, and clearly trying to do too much for his team. Mm-hmm. Drops both of them, and, and the, the crowd that was there at the Allen Will Dome really let him have it, so I kind of felt bad for him. But, yeah, man, it's just for UTSA, the defense, you know, they played tough for a quarter against FIU, mm-hmm. but when you're consistently getting put back out there after turnover after turnover, there's only so much you can do. And uh, I know there's been kind of a little bit of chatter on Twitter about Frank Wilson's future. Adrian Bermudez, who hosts the Alamo Audible podcast that I was on last week, had a lot of thought of, thoughts about that. But overall, just, you know, great win for FIU and, and just a tough one for UTSA, especially on the offensive side. Yeah, like I said, that offense just keeps continuing to get worse. And that's I – I think that's why I was just so surprised is, you know, based on what I've seen out of UTSA, I thought, well, it can't get any worse. And then it continues to get worse. Um, so that's, I think, what was most so surprising for me. Um, and like you mentioned, that defense kind of hung tough for a little bit, but there's only so much you can do uh, when you have an offense that's as relentless as FIU's is right now. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting on the FIU front that uh, I wanted to bring up was that uh, you had a tweet about um, someone mistaking Jose Borregales' ethnicity, which I thought was really funny. Um, that some, what, I believe it was just someone some, – was, this was in a parking lot somewhere. Someone was asking you – told you that they were happy about – Latin American football players or something? No. no I, uh, in, in Joe's in Joe's defense, I, I do a ton of tweeting about FIU as covering the team, so um, he's actually conflating. You're conflating two different tweets, but oh, okay. that no, no. But your what it was was uh, it was the FAU game. 
Um, the stadium, uh, for those of you listening, is it's Ricardo Silva Stadium, the former FIU stadium, which is the home turf for uh, for FIU. And uh, someone in the suites came up to me, uh, a gentleman, and it, it, if you've never been to Ricardo Silva Stadium, you know, the suites, it, it's a very intimate space between the press box and the suites. And you have to kind of walk down along this, the, the suites to get to the bathroom. So a guy saw my media badge and came to me and said, hey, yeah, you know, you're the, you're the guy who does a lot of the writing for FIU. I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess that's me. Um, but he's... <laughs> He's like, yeah, man. It's great to see a you know a, a, a Latino giving back to uh, to FIU. It's a great thing to see. You know, and Ricardo Silva. I talked to him earlier today, and it's just great to see that you know that uh, Latin touch here at FIU. Um, the issue with that is the birthplace of Senor Silva is Milan, Italy. Um, so Ricardo Silva is is uh, yeah. You can do the math there on, on that one. So I just kind of politely uh, excused myself from the conversation and, and figured, yeah, well, we'll just let that one be. <laughs> you didn't correct him. I know I'm Joe. Joe what am I? <laughs> if the guy thinks if the guy thinks that Ricardo Silva is 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 um, Hispanic, uh, you know, far be it from me. And it's it, it like it wasn't like one of those like Spain Hispanic type situations. It was Ricardo Silva is born and raised in Italy, right? And went to Tulane. Uh, so no, <laughs> um. I, I did not correct him. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I thought that was so funny, and I don't know how I confused those two tweets, but that was <laughs> – I don't know. That's that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> a, 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 lot of, a lot of things happened to me at the stadium uh, at, at, uh, at FIU, so I know. yeah, you would uh, – it's an adventure. <laughs> that could be the subject of its own podcast, which one day hopefully will make happen or something. Uh, but for now, we'll move on to UAB beating Southern Miss by the skin of their teeth, 26-23. to 23. Uh, With this win, UAB have officially – one CUSA West. Of course, a huge accomplishment for them, considering where this program was just a few short years ago. Uh, but in this game, though, three Tyler Johnson interceptions made it a little more interesting than it probably should have been. Went all the way into overtime, where Spencer Brown scored the game-winning touchdown, his only touchdown of the day, actually. Uh, for USM, Tate Watley was back under center, and he looked okay, but really this game was characterized by neither offense really looking like uh, they were all together so southern miss only had five net rush yards on the day and you know a win's a win for the blazers but really this was just an ugly game for both teams yeah you know i'm glad you mentioned the five rushing yards total i mean they the uab defense did a great job against the run overall um the Part of the reason it was the five rushing yards is because, uh, you know, um, they, they had seven sacks. So mm-hmm. that's part of the reason that the rushing total was so bad, led by Trey Crawford's three. Um, Tyler Johnson, you did mention, he, he's a guy who's definitely talented. But part of the reason why I'm such a fan of A.J. Erdley is because he's not going to beat you. And, and in this case, Johnson's three turnovers almost cost the Blazers this one. Um I'm not going to spend too much time on this game because for me, honestly, Joe, what a story. You know, UAB literally comes back from the dead to uh, to win CUSA West. And th- here's the thing I would tell anyone listen to this one. If you haven't seen these two videos, please go YouTube them or Google them or do what you got to do. Uh, the video of UAB President Ray Watts telling the Blazer team four years ago that – and I'm quoting him here. The funds weren't there, you know, to keep the team afloat, and and they essentially be shutting down the program. And, and the reaction from, uh, you know, he had to go into the the the, the meeting, the practice, the meeting of practice, and, and tell them that. And, and the reaction from the players just it's it's heartbreaking. But you contrast that with the video uh, from this Saturday of Bill Clark telling his team in the locker room that you know they'd won Conference USA West. That's just great stuff, man. So that's just you know kind of my huge takeaway from Saturday. Yeah, and 
it just seems like there's just so much reason to be happy for where this program is considering, uh, you know, what they went through with all that, that you mentioned with, you know, Bill Clark being able to lead all these guys in. And it's just, it's just an awesome story. I mean, with how well this team's performed, how Spencer Brown being a dominant rushing, uh, being a dominant rusher, AJ early playing really well under center when he's healthy. And it's just, it's a great story and it's, you know, great to see that they are going to get their chance at a league title now. And they're ranked. That was the other thing we talked about last week. Uh, it really looked like they were going to get into the national top 25 soon. And that's exactly what they did this week with the uh, USA Today coaches poll. They are number 25. So hard work paying off for everybody involved in that program. And that's, that's, you know, why we're fans of this stupid sport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. And they, you know, I can't think of a team that's more deserving to be ranked than UAB, most definitely. Absolutely. Uh, so we talk about, you know, fans being excited. Um, that doesn't necessarily translate to good attendance, though. And um, there was an article in the Tampa Bay Times that I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, college football attendance kind of seems to be, you know, down for the most part uh, over the course of or over the nation, I should say, um, they kind of use the specific examples of U of F and FSU, uh, and kind of, comp- and a little bit of USF too. Um, but really the whole point of that article was like, these schools are putting in so much effort to make game days a fun experience. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's so much more comfortable to just like stay home and, you know, have a tailgate party at your house and watch it on your TV or something like that. And I think that's kind of factoring into why fans just aren't necessarily too into going to games anymore. And I think we're seeing that along uh, all throughout Conference USA as well. Uh, several teams throughout this league are kind of having issues with attendance. Um, you know, Western Kentucky is about as guilty of that as any other team in this league. Um, so I just was curious, you know, do you do you kind of see that happening a lot uh, on your travels to different stadiums? Just problems with home attendance as of late? Yeah, no, absolutely, Joe. You know, and you mentioned that article is written in my hometown newspaper, the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, it's the po- article makes a lot of good points. That I think can be applied across the nation. If give me a second, I'm I'm going to kind of touch on a couple things here that you know I think are applicable not only just in Florida but like I said across the nation. You touched on the first one. Um, it's taken a little bit of time, but that same issue that's plagued the NFL has really kind of made its way to college. Right, the viewing experience is really just better elsewhere, you know, and, and I, I had it in my notes that I wanted your thoughts on it, but you touched on it. Um, in my opinion, there's nothing like being at your school's game, especially when the team is good. But with that being said, a lot of my friends in the area have been throwing Saturday watch parties, you know, due to the fact that UF, FSU, and UM, they've been bad this mm-hmm. year to call a spade a spade. They've had the early game. Then the USF or UCF game has kind of been that midday slot. And then you can still catch the primetime game at night, you know, all from the comfort of your house. You can still drink. And, and here's the dirty secret about a lot of college stadiums. And this is applicable to no matter whether it's Conference USA, um, my home stadium at, at uh, Ricardo Silva Stadium or my alma mater at USF. Um, they all are metal bleachers, <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not like a, a lot of those stadiums have great seating, uh, the college stadiums. And, you know, when you're packed in tight, that isn't fun. Um, my second thing is this the price of tickets has really gone 
gone up and and uh in a lot of college towns they aren't major cities so when you have a 5 10 and 15 percent markup and joe you're much smarter than i you know you also cover cover uh, uh sports business as well so you can uh, attest to this when you have that kind of markup uh in season ticket prices that can make the difference between people choosing to renew and people staying home you know it's not like this is uh la chicago new york and a lot of these small towns the buying power just isn't there mm-hmm. um and the third thing i'll say I think style of play is huge. Um, this may be unique to some of the schools here in the state, but I, I don't think it's, it, it is actually um, because you can look at um, other programs across the nation. But in specificity to Florida, I've said this to anyone who will listen. Steve Spurrier kind of set a standard of, you know, at UF of the fun and gun. You know, the team, we're going to score 50 points and the ball is going to be in the air. And that's really legendary here in the state. My alma mater, UCF, you know, they were a solid program before Scott Scott Frost, even the year after they won the Fiesta Bowl, which was my senior year. Sellouts were still really hard to come by. You know, that was meant for students or fans. You insert this new style of play and it's the hottest ticket in Central Florida. Uh, At FIU, I think that's an issue as well. They're winning games, but it's not necessarily the most exciting style of football. And I think all those things contributed to uh, college football attendance being down across the nation. For sure. It's a myriad of factors, really, just because, like – I mentioned Western having issues with it and, uh, you know, my there's just so many things that surround football games for students in particular that kind of end up being more fun than the actual game in a lot of cases. Um, You know, you can be as big of a nerd for college football, you know, as anybody out there. But that's the thing. If you really appreciate like a lot of the finer aspects of football and that's what brings the entertainment for you you can absorb all of that much better through a tv where you can you know talk about it with your friends and actually hear each other not you know arguing over crowd noise or whatever and kind of go back and watch replays and do all that so that really adds to the watching experience if you're there for that and then the other thing is football games for a lot of people who don't necessarily who aren't you know necessarily football diehards they just kind of see it as a social excuse again you can get that like social gathering experience at parties or um in some cases you just go to the tailgates and then by that point you're so drunk they won't let you into the stadium not that i'm speaking from experience or anything (laughs) so um that's the thing with these college football environments it's almost like they put so much effort into improving the overall like game day party social gathering scene on campus and that's great but it doesn't necessarily make people want to go to the game you know what i mean like they can go somewhere where maybe the game's on in the background and they can talk and socialize and you know eat food and do whatever and that's that's a big part of it so i think when you talk about there being a national trend of, of football attendance being down, I don't really understand how people are, you know, surprised because I think we've been building to this over the last couple decades with the improvements in technology and, uh, you know, people improving their home theater setups and all that to the point where, yeah, you don't need to go to a game to really get the full experience. You just need a TV and, you know, some friends or something. And even then you don't even really need that, but you just, Honestly, you just need a laptop to kind of absorb it. And it, it doesn't help when you have, you know, teams like, um, you know, 
Western Kentucky who aren't playing up to their potential at all. So you're not even really enjoying the on-field product that much. You're just spending hundreds of dollars to drive there to park, probably get a hotel, um, buy overpriced food. So yeah, it's a, it's a myriad of things. So I'm not really surprised that this is happening. Joe, yeah, don't want to run too long, but I just want to throw sure. this out at you and get your thoughts. Um, how much of a factor do you think, you know, obviously this is college football we're talking about, the alcohol issue, you know, that's kind of the dirty secret. How much of a factor do you think that is? Um, obviously there are some schools, a handful, may, I'm not sure how many off the top of my head, that do allow alcohol sales in their stadiums, but uh, a lot of them, you know, because it is NCAA football, do not. Um, what's your thought on that? Maybe, maybe, um, maybe contributing to the lack of attendance. I don't think it's that huge. I think it's factoring in some, but not a lot. Because, I mean, this thing, this has been an issue for a long time, right? Uh, like, I, I went to an ACC, or sort of an ACC school in Louisville, and they sell beer in that stadium, and uh, there's still attendance issues. Like, there's there's attendance issues with basketball there, and, you know, or student attendance issues with basketball there anyway, and you know, that program's had a lot of success over the last couple decades. Uh, but I think just with, you know, it's it's not hard to, like, just drink before the game if that's really, you know, your bag. Um, and it's so much cheaper. Uh, so I think people that, like, go to, you know, games with the with the goal of, like, oh, yeah, let's let's get some drinks and then two beers cost you 15 bucks or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't think it's factoring in that much, but I'm sure it it doesn't help when, you know, people get to games and then they, you know, have that kind of buyer's remorse later of like, all right, we watched an okay game. We bought, you know, two beers each and a plate of nachos and we spent, you know, 75 bucks. And that doesn't include what we paid for tickets and parking. So, you know what I mean? Or something like that. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Of course. So it factors in a little bit, but yeah, I think that's that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on uh, in the national college football landscape. And before we ramble on for too much longer, uh, we'll go ahead and preview next week's action for you all. So in week 12, we got another good slate of games coming up beginning on Thursday this week. 9.30 Eastern time is when you're going to see FAU take on North Texas in Denton. The line here, North Texas is up by three. Uh, I think North Texas can win this game um, based on what we've seen out of FAU's defense this year. I don't know that that pass defense is going to be able to contend with what uh, North Texas can do when everybody in that offense is on. So I'm picking North Texas to win this game. Yeah, Joe, you just kind of touched on what one of my major points is. I'm still surprised that, you know, an FAU pass defense that's still really talented, it feels like I say it every week, uh, has kind of been the, the weak point of the defense. Uh, for for the Owls, we already know, you know, the quarterback who has to protect the ball, that looks like it's going to be Chris Robinson. Uh, the best defense against Mason Fine in that passing attack is going to be Devin Singletary and Kareth White Jr. So you have to generate the offense and uh, also compete. Wow, convert, convert key third downs. That's going to be huge. You know, playing the time of possession game is going to be a huge factor in it if Lane Kiffin can, uh, you know, kind of get this team to victory. Uh, for UNT, they can't have any silly mistakes that contributed to their collapse last week. Um, but I'm taking UNT. I think that they'll find a way to get the job done. 
that certainly seems to be the most likely outcome here. And uh, we'll move on to the Saturday games then. And uh, we'll, we'll start with the UTEP-Western Kentucky matchup, just because that's off the top of my list here. Uh, 7.30 Eastern time is when you can see this one uh, in Bowling Green. Uh, Western is favored by 7.5 here, but uh, I'm picking UTEP. I think they're <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think based on this is just kind of the state. I think that Western Kentucky football is in. Um, I I just think when they find themselves getting down, there's not too much that they can really do. Uh, they've had issues defending their run all year. I think that's UTEP's strength right now, uh, especially with you know the last uh, few games that we've seen out of Quadras Wadley. Um, so yeah, I think. The Hilltoppers are going to falter in this one. And uh, if they don't, great. But I'm picking UTEP. Okay. Well, yeah, I did. I guess that one definitely caught me off guard that you uh, you were taking UTEP. Uh, I guess that kind of just goes to show where a lot of Western Kentucky fans are with this program right now. For for UTEP, you know, Kai Loxley's health is going to be huge. You know, he had two bad ankles last week, but he did some nice things as a passer. And as I saw last week, he's really a rhythm guy. You know, once he gets going and gets hot, uh, you know, that'll really open up things for Quadris Wadley on the ground and really gets him going as well. For Western, they just can't shoot themselves in the foot like they have all year long. You know, uh, Steve Duncan will have to get the ball to his playmakers, McGuan Dean, you know, Jaquez Sloan, those guys. Uh, I have here on my notes that the hot seat will really heat up if the Tops lose this one, but it seems it's already hot now based on the reporting from Bowling Green. And uh, I think Western finds a way to get it done. Uh, in my notes I have here, if not, I'll be holding auditions for a new co-host next week because I don't think Joe will want anything to do with Conference USA football, but <laughs> apparently you're already resigned to the fact to lose. So uh, at least I know you'll be here next week. For sure. We'll have to pry me out of this with a, with a crowbar at some point. Um, but you can catch that one on BN Sports before I forget. And uh, that other game uh, you can catch on the CBS Sports Network between North Texas and FAU. Um, and then on the SEC Network at noon, Middle Tennessee is heading to Lexington to face Kentucky, number 11 Kentucky. Uh, the Wildcats favored by 16 in this game. Um, I, I think that's going to be uh, a fair game for them. But uh, Kentucky's going to be able to get that win, I believe. Um, I, I've watched them quite a bit this year, actually. I think Benny Snell is uh, a, a really intriguing talent um, when you talk about guys who are probably going to go to the next level. So I, I don't think Middle Tennessee's defense is going to be able to contend with him, especially if Kentucky can control the clock and keep Brent Stock still off the field. Um, so, yeah, give me the Wildcats in this one. Once again, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Benny Snell. Uh, I'm right there with you. He's a really intriguing prospect. And obviously, if Middle Tennessee State's going to have any chance to win this ballgame, it's going to be by containing him. Uh, MTSU, as I mentioned, they've been playing really good football since losing down in, uh, in Miami to FIU. Brent Stockstill, Ty Lee, Shatan Mobley have looked great, but you know Kentucky has a really good defense as well, and I just don't see the uh, Blue Raider offense having much uh, much success against uh, against Kentucky, and I don't think they're going to get a chance to pull off the upset in Lexington. So, the Wildcats coming off of two straight losses, you know they're looking to rebound, and I think they'll get the job done. I think we're in agreement on that one then. So at 2 p.m. Eastern time, we have the FIU Panthers heading to Charlotte, North Carolina to face the 49ers on ESPN3. Uh, I'm not too worried about FIU here. Um, I think James Morgan, with the way he's been playing the last couple games, uh, I think he can get it done. Um, I think with Charlotte, we're just not going to be able to see them keep pace as we've seen, especially with, like you've talked about a lot, the lack of a good enough quarterback to really set them apart uh, despite Ben LeMay being good I just don't think 
that style of play is going to get them enough points fast enough to really keep pace with what we know this FIU offense can do. So I'm taking the Panthers in this game. Yeah, there you go. I think if Chris Reynolds were in this game, you know, it'd be a little bit of a closer uh, ball game for the 49ers because he really brings that pass attack. But, you know, uh, Sheriffs and Clue just really haven't been able to get things going. Uh, I'll be at the game. I'll be in the Queen City watching this one live. So hopefully I can have a little more detailed report as far as what Charlotte is able to do with those two quarterbacks. But, you know, as far as FIU goes, last week was a really nice morale boost for the Panthers after getting blown out. The one thing that I think you want to keep an eye on if you're watching this game is going to be the run defense. You know, uh, UTEP, we talked on and on about the struggles on offense. One thing that Charlotte does have is Benny LeMay. Uh, this is going to be a test to see if they've been able to improve that run D from the really abysmal performance against FAU where they gave up almost 400 yards on the ground. Uh, FIU will face a formidable defense. You know, guys like Juwan Foggy, Ben DeLuca, and Alex Highsmith, but uh, I think James Morgan is definitely enough to get the job done. You know, he's been, like I said, my uh, newcomer of the year in Conference USA, and I think he's right there at Mason Fine as far as being the top quarterback in Conference USA. I think the Panthers win. Yeah, and we talk about attendance being an issue all throughout the country. At this game, you can get a ticket for three bucks. So go ahead and check that out if you're in the area. Uh, see what this FIU team is all about. And see if Charlotte is uh, heading in the right direction. You tell us. And then we have Old Dominion hosting VMI at 2 p.m. Also ESPN+. Plus. Um, I'm taking the Monarchs in this game. I think this team has shown a few times over the year that, like, they really can play. It's just a matter of, like, what team's going to show up. But I think there's a lot of room for error against this VMI team. So I think we'll, we'll be able to see Old Dominion get their fourth win of the year here. Yeah, I mean I- – the thing here, you know, for VMI is, you know, Scott Wetchenheim, he's 6-37 and 37 in his four years of VMI, and they're 1-9 this year. So mm-hmm. uh, it's really been a rough one for his key debts. Uh, I don't think this will be much of a challenge for ODU because the thing we do know is that the Monarchs can score points. Uh, VMI has given up 60 points three times this year. Oof. So, uh, yeah, the main thing I'm keeping my eye on is, you know, you want to know what the run game can uh, can do for ODU because we know what the receivers can do. The run game's been kind of spotty, but they do have talented backs. ODU wins. I just want to keep an eye on the run game and see what type of success that they'll be able to have. Should be an interesting thing to watch. And then at 2.30 Eastern time, we have Marshall hosting UTSA. Marshall favored by 26 in this one. If Isaiah Green's on, then yeah, um, I, you know, I still think they win either way. Uh, I, I, I don't know if it'll be by 26, but I think the Thundering Herd have this one fairly in the bag here. Yeah, you know, for Marshall, like like you mentioned, uh, Isaiah Green, you know, he's really a, a nice talent. And he's a guy who you can't help but root for if you know his story. Uh, I think Marshall obviously will win this one. But the thing I'm looking for is the play of their third string running back and Brendan Knox. If he can compliment Anthony Anderson like he did last week, uh, it'll just give the herd another weapon as they wait to see if Tyler King can get back. Uh, UTSA, I just want to see if they can build on some late success. And mm-hmm. also keep an eye on whether Bryce Rivers gets some time at quarterback. Uh, he did come in and throw the late touchdown pass last week. That put UTSA on the board. Uh, but like I saw firsthand last week, you know, it's it's not that they're getting totally overmatching games. They just aren't talented enough to overcome the kind of mistakes that they have been having. So Marshall gets the win. Yeah. And with that, we'll move on to Southern Miss hosting Louisiana Tech at 3.30 Eastern time. The Texters favored by two in this game. Um I think this will be interesting with Southern Miss. I like what I've seen out of Tate Watley. I think that team has been pretty good at times. Um, and then something to keep in mind, uh, you know, with this game being at Southern Miss, uh, 
I don't. Southern Miss has only lost one game at home this year, so they they play tough when they're in Hattiesburg. Um, but I, I think Southern Miss will still win, but or I think Louisiana Tech will win. Rather, let me correct myself there. Um, but I think this game's going to be really entertaining, and we showed that Southern Miss can hang with some of the better teams uh, in this conference last week when they want to. But it's just a matter of uh, you know what team's going to show up. Yeah, and really quick, I've, I've, this is the second correction I've had to make on, on Old Dominion here. Um, just, you know, for, for point of reference, uh, it is the final game in this incarnation of Foreman Field, but they're renovating it. They're not moving to a new stadium. Uh, I had a friend who went to ODU who's actually texted me um, to, to let me know that. So that's uh, that's on me. I've got to make sure I get that on the record as being right. Um, for, <clears throat> for Tech, you know, I feel like this is one of those games that – I don't know how you feel, Joe. I think if they played it ten times, uh, it'd be split five. Uh, you know, they split the game five and five. You mm-hmm. know, because it, it, it's really that evenly matched, in my opinion. Tech had a really good win last week, and if they're going to get their eighth win, we know that Jamar Smith has to cut down on the turnovers. Jalen Ferguson will have to dis- disrupt uh, whoever's playing quarterback for Southern Miss, and it's kind of been a year of highs and lows at the quarterback position. You know, for Jack Abraham, Tate Wally, um, whoever it is, you know, uh, they're going to have to kind of get the ball into the hands of Quez Watkins early and often. I'd like to see if Jack Abraham can play because I think he's clearly entrenched in my opinion as the guy, no matter uh, how the rest of the season plays out. But I think Tech is the more talented team. I think they get the win. We're in agreement on that. Uh, and then another big one here to uh, start wrapping things up. We have UAB heading to Texas A&M uh, at Kyle Field and College Station. 7 p.m. Eastern time on ESPN2 is when you're going to be able to catch this one. Uh, the Aggies favored by 16 this one is interesting. I think if UAB did win, this would be huge for that program and for this league, really. But, um, you know, I, I haven't watched a lot of Texas A&M football this year. Uh, I know six and four is not necessarily, you know, where you want to be. If, if you're any college football program in the state of Texas, really, you want to be, uh, you know, winning as many games as possible. But, uh, you know, what do you think of this game? I'm I'm a little... I just don't know what enough about Texas A&M to really say too much. No, sure. I mean, I can jump in here. You know, the Aggies, Joe, they, they've won the games that they were supposed to win. If you look at their record this year, you know, the 6-4, and four, sure, you don't necessarily want four losses, especially, you know, in the SEC, which is highly competitive. But their defense is really good. If you if you follow Jimbo Fisher's career, as you know, I saw him his first year at Florida State. Uh, that's one of the things with Jimbo is that his offense kind of takes a little bit of time to get going, especially when he's implementing it. So uh, the six and four record actually isn't as bad as it may seem. Uh, their defense uh, teams are needing an average of eight point nine yards on third down to convert. So you know, for UAB, if they're going to have any shot at winning the game, they're going to have to stay out of those third and long situations. Uh, if AJ Early can go. I think UAB is more than equipped to pull off the upset, and they'll be playing with house money, in my opinion. They, they have to go in there and play their game, ride the rushing attack. But, you know, one of the, the strengths of Texas A&M's offense is Travion Williams. And that's going to be a really good test for a really great UAB defense. I think they'll keep it close, but, you know, uh, Texas A&M's just a little more talented, and, and that game's on the road. So uh, or, or it's on the road for UAB, so I think Texas A&M will pull out the W. Okay. Uh, I will certainly be watching that game, especially with uh, the national spotlight on a CUSA team in a, in a big game such as that one. And then we have, uh, to close out the week, 7.30 Eastern time on ESPNU, LSU hosting Rice. Uh, LSU favored by 43.5 in this game. So I think 
that is kind of indicative of what's going to happen here. Uh, Tigers will get to nine wins on the year against a Rice team that is just trying their best to figure things out. Um, it's clear Mike Bloomberg's going to need a little more time if he's going to completely turn that program around. Uh, meanwhile, you know, this Tiger team has been in talks to make the playoff at multiple points this year. I uh, don't know if they have enough time left to make up that ground now, but uh, certainly an impressive squad that uh, Ed Orgeron, the Cajun Cookie Monster, has going at uh, in Baton Rouge there. <laughs> yeah, in my notes I have LSU wins, dot, 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 hopefully not by more than four scores. Um, it's going to be that kind of night for Mike Bloomgren's club. club. Uh, keep an eye on Parker Towns to see how much he plays. I, I think if you're a Rice fan, that's something you want to keep an eye on. And, you know, the Walters, uh, you know, Aston, Austin, plus Austin, Trammell. Interesting to see if they can do anything against one of the nation's besties, but LSU rolls. That's kind of obvious here. Yeah, I think this one, when the line is 43 points, I think that, that tells you really what, what kind of contest you're going to see. <laughs> Most definitely. All right, and with that, we will start wrapping things up here. Thank you all so much for listening. If you are not already, please subscribe to the Underdog Podcast on iTunes. Follow at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes, too. That that helps the show grow, and some of them are, are funny to read when we when we do get those, um, just because you all are, are very creative, let's say, in the way you compliment us. Um, but... <laughs> With that, we'll say like us on Facebook as well and check out underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football goodness. Uh, I am at J-O-E-H-I-O on Twitter. If you want to follow me, Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore uh, on Twitter. If you want to follow him and his adventures in the FIU press box and in the parking lot and whatnot. And with that, we will say have a great week. R.I.P. Stan Lee. Happy football watching, everybody. Happy football watching. I will leave the stadium previews to someone else next week.